It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Of all the issues you might be worried about heading into the weekend, I bet you're not spending too much time on this one. Jill Biden and her patterned tights. According to Salon, the first lady is trending, and not in a good way, on conservative Twitter because of a photograph of her, I think she's getting off a plane or something, wearing, and let me make sure I get this straight, a tailored black blazer, an A-line leather skirt, black boots, and the aforementioned tights. Started a nasty pylon, Republicans drawing comparisons to Melania Trump, Jill Biden is too old to be wearing fishnets, it's gross, Melania, on the other hand, would rock them, and Madonna called and wants her trashy look back. Uh, Biden supporters then fired back. She is wonderful. You were jealous. She looked very chic. They're not fishnet stockings, for the record. They are sheer tights with the geometric pattern. I looked at this. They're fine. It's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. I have one position on this. Jill Biden can wear whatever the hell she wants and get off her back. All right. In a slightly more serious vein, woke up this morning, got the news of the passing of Prince Philip at the age of 99. Uh, I don't have a whole hell of a lot to say about Prince Philip because he always sort of seemed to be the second banana, the second fiddle. I mean, he's long in career in which he interacted with all of these world leaders. Uh, I think I read that he and Queen Elizabeth got married in 1947. So the pictures of him with, you know, American presidents going back to, I don't know if it's uh, Truman or Eisenhower. Um, he, um, you know, in his younger years, he, he did a lot of uh, charity work. He said things, sometimes he said things that were inappropriate, particularly uh, considered to have a racist tinge. Uh, but by and large, I mean, the thing I think I feel sorry for is that in his final months, uh, you know, there was that whole uh, business with Harry and Meghan, as you know, uh, but the point is that uh, Harry complained in that Oprah interview that for a while Prince Philip wasn't returning his calls. His dad was not returning his calls. So that had to be a hard thing for him while he's in the hospital to see, you know, all of the uh, anguish about his son and his marriage and breaking away from the palace and all of that. But anyway, I don't have anything fabulous to say, but I don't have anything bad to say about him, except I, I think he was a tremendous help to the Queen, and that was his job, helping the Queen. Prince Philip dead at 99. Uh, you know that Amazon unionization drive? Well, about half the ballots have been counted, uh, and at this stage, Amazon is leading by more than two to one over those who want to start a union at Jeff Bezos' company. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, it's going to win that Amazon is going to win. Um, and I think if that happens, it's not that, you know, there are difficult conditions for many workers, particularly drivers and warehouse workers. But I think in this economy, they're kind of happy to have a job and they don't want to do anything to screw it up. Uh, that would be a big victory for Amazon uh, that, you know, sets the tone for any other Amazon facilities where there might be a union drive. Uh, you know, this John Boehner book, I guess it formally comes out uh, next week, I must say, it packs quite a punch. I mean, you, most of these political memoirs are like, yes, you know, then I had the meeting and we agreed on the compromise and all that stuff. I mean, Boehner is coming out swinging. He beaten the crap out of Tom DeLay. Uh, I saw an excerpt saying that uh, he once told Harry Reid, you know, his Democratic counterpart in the Senate, to go F himself. Uh, one that part that caught my eye has to do with the Clinton impeachment. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, impeached uh, on a pretty much party line vote by the Republicans. 
um, while Boehner was in Congress uh, over the Monica Lewinsky mess and lied to a grand jury and then acquitted by the Senate. In my view, says John Boehner, Republicans impeached him for one reason and one reason only, because it was strenuously recommended to us by one Tom DeLay, then the House Majority Leader, as I recall. Tom believed that impeaching Clinton would win us all these House seats, would be a big win politically, and he convinced enough of the membership and the GOP base that this was true. I was on board at the time, Boehner says. I won't pretend otherwise, but I regret it now. I regret that I didn't fight against it. So he's saying, hey, it was purely political. He has got a lot to say in this book, you know, whether you care about John Boehner's opinions or not, about today's Republican Party, about Donald Trump, who he blames for the January 6th riot at the Capitol, uh, about how he probably couldn't even get elected today as a sort of a, you know, Midwestern country club Republican, given the state of today's GOP. All right. Probably talk more about that when I get a chance to see the complete book next week. Let's get down to business, folks. Number one, Matt Gates. More stuff coming out about Congressman Matt Gates. Uh, the New York Times, which, as I recall, broke the story originally and then broke the story about him seeking a, a preemptive pardon from Donald Trump, uh, reports today uh, about, and everybody's got a version of this story. So Gates's fate is very much tied at this point to a guy who was a friend and political ally of his, the former tax collector in a county north of Orlando, Joel Greenberg. Joel Greenberg has been charged with sex trafficking and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, and Joel Greenberg, his lawyers were in court yesterday on some of these charges. And his lawyer came out and spoke to reporters and said, um, Matt Gates must be feeling pretty uncomfortable today. The lawyer also said, Greenberg said that um, it was likely, or based on his remarks, the media believe it is likely that Joel Greenberg is going to plead guilty. So naturally, the media are filled with speculation here about what that means for Matt Gates, because usually if you're facing this whole array of charges, I mean, sex trafficking, you're looking at a lot of years behind bars, you're doing that in some kind of plea deal with prosecutors. And why would he be pleading with prosecutors? To get a lesser sentence by throwing his pal, Mr. Gates, under the proverbial bus. Uh, New York Times says that um, Greenberg's potential deal comes as the FBI has widened the investigation to include questions about a trip to the Bahamas that Gates took with some Republican allies from Florida and women who were asked to provide sex for them, according to four people familiar with the inquiry. Um Investigators have also been told, this is getting to be a kind of a kitchen sink situation for the Florida Republican, also been told that Gates and a Florida lobbyist discussed arranging a sham candidate in a state Senate race last year to siphon votes from an ally's opponent. In other words, you run someone else who's not going to win, but peels off enough votes that your person wins. Um, looks like that never actually happened. Uh, here's the quote from Greenberg's lawyer. I'm sure Matt Gates is not feeling very comfortable today. You know, he's an experienced Florida lawyer. You don't just say that unless you want to send a message. Uh, meanwhile, second senior aide in Gates' office uh, is reported to have quit. So people are jumping off the ship. Um, and then there's this Daily Beast story having to do with Venmo. And apparently it says that uh, Daily Beast has, has, has examined or has sources who have examined three payments by Matt Gates to his friend Joel Greenberg, and then Joel Greenberg 
paid uh, women who are accused, suspected, believed to have had sex with one or both of them. Um, and on the receipts, on the Greenberg payments of the women, it said school or tuition, which would be fine unless Gates was part of a scheme where he gives the money to his pal Greenberg, Greenberg gives the money to the women. It's all about having sex because it is illegal in terms of prostitution charges, and certainly crossing state lines or going to Bahamas to do that. And then, uh, you know, school or tuition, quote, is the cover story. So complications, shall we say, for Matt Gates, who, by the way, hasn't been charged with anything, is presumed innocent. Um, and in that New York Times story, there is a statement uh, from his lawyer saying, telling the Times, in your apparent rush to grab a headline, your story contains numerous false facts which call into question your sources, both as to their credibility and to the source of their knowledge, says Gates's lawyer, Jeffrey Johnson. All right, let's move on to number two. You know, I kind of feel like I should just set up a daily uh, mansion watch what is Joe Manchin doing? What is Joe Manchin saying? What is Joe Manchin thinking? Because the um, more moderate Democratic senator from West Virginia, who has taken upon himself this role as the guy who is trying to slow down the progressive train and the Biden train in the Democratic Party, who wants actual negotiations with the Republican Party. The question is, does the Republican Party want actual negotiations with Joe Biden's party? Uh, doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, uh, has severe reservations about gun control. I mean, he is, I mean, he's not the only one. There are a handful of other senators who might vote uh, with Manchin on some of these things. But he is, he's, you know, with an op-ed in the Washington Post yesterday, he is speaking out more and more and more. Uh, and so Huffington Post has a story, Huffington Post liberal outfit not too happy about this, one of the parts of the story of the op-ed that was overlooked was Manchin saying Congress shouldn't pass voting rights legislation unless it helps Donald Trump supporters, this is the Huffington Post spin, trust that their votes will be counted. So here is the quote from Manchin in his piece actually ran Wednesday in the Post. Our ultimate goal should be to restore bipartisan faith in our voting process by assuring all Americans that their votes will be counted, secured, and protected. Now here's the HuffPost take. Manchin didn't mention that many Republicans have lost faith in the voting process largely because Trump lost in the 2020 presidential election and then lied about it relentlessly. The lies fueled a mob that ransacked the Capitol on January 6th, interrupting lawmakers as Congress certified the final result. Now, um, it is fair to say that this is part of the backdrop for what's happened in Georgia with the new voting law there, what uh, the proposals for voting restrictions in Texas and other states that have Republican governors. It's fair to say that. But here's Manchin saying, look, we can't just write off half the country. We can't just ram everything through under party line vote. And we have to make the Republicans feel, the Trump supporters feel heard on this. Uh, now, is Joe Manchin, um, first of all, Joe Manchin wants to win re-election. Second of all, Joe Manchin wants other moderate Senate Democrats to win re-election, or bye-bye majority, and hello, Mitch McConnell, majority leader once again. But beyond that, I think Manchin really believes this. He was a governor of uh, West Virginia, and he is not 
a flaming liberal. He's not part of a Bernie wing. He's not even part of what you might call the emerging Biden wing, pushing all kinds of $2 trillion bills and so forth. Um, and so, uh, oh, uh, the Huffington Post briefly interviewed uh, Manchin. This is last month in the Senate basement. Here are the quotes. The only thing I would caution anybody and everybody about is that we had an insurrection on January 6th because of voting, right? And lack of trust in voting. We should not at all attempt to do anything that would create more distrust and division. Uh, so the HuffPost goes on to say, well, you know, this is a delusion on Manchin's part. Um, that, that uh, you know, we have the Republicans who are pushing voting restrictions in Georgia and elsewhere, uh, even if their lack of confidence results from the fake fraud claims, it's the definition of pandering. It's indulging a mass delusion. So, um, look, it takes two to tango. And if Joe Manchin can bring Republicans to the table in a serious way on voting rights, on gun restrictions. I don't want to say gun control because we're talking here about background checks. Manchin has a watered down version of that. On infrastructure, which Republicans used to like, uh, constantly talked about infrastructure week when Trump was in the White House. But of course, there's the question of how you pay for it and do you raise corporate taxes down from the level to which Trump slashed them? Do you raise taxes on people over 400K and all of that? So I don't know. I mean, Manchin is making himself into a pivotal figure in the United States Senate. Are the Republicans really interested in serious compromise? If so, would Biden and his Democratic Party go along? I'm glad someone is at least addressing these things, but I understand the idea that Dems are worried about being snookered. You know, in other words, they delay and they delay, and there is no deal because the GOP isn't serious about a deal. That's what happened in 2009. That's what happened in 2010 with Barack Obama and Mitch McConnell. Um, so watch that space. All right, number three. Uh, New York Times has a kind of a deep dive on what is the Republican Party right now in the post-Trump era, except we're not really in the post-Trump era because Donald J. Trump has incredible sway over this GOP. And if you stop and think of that for a moment, let's look at other one-term presidents who lost. Okay, um, Jimmy Carter, defeated in 1980 after one term. Did he have great sway over the Democratic Party? No. Usually when the incumbent president is knocked off, the party wants to move on because it takes a lot. You know, the incumbents have so many advantages, it takes a lot to lose the White House. George H.W. Bush lost to Bill Clinton in 92. Were the Republicans sitting around saying, you know what, we need to think more about what George H.W. Bush wanted even though he lost? No, of course not. Uh, and then you have to fast forward because, you know, um, Clinton had two terms. W had two terms. Barack had two terms, and then you have Donald Trump defeated last year. And yet, he is still continuing to shape this Republican Party despite his loss, which he, of course, claims was due to widespread fraud, which is completely and totally unproven. So the Times says GOP le leaders are lashing out in Trumpian fashion at business, baseball, and the media, don't forget us, to appeal to many of the same conservatives and voters who supported Donald Trump. And debates over the size and scope of government have been overshadowed by the sort of culture war clashes that the tabloid king, that's Donald, relished. This is the party Trump has remade. So they're gathering for a party retreat in Palm Beach. I don't know why Palm Beach. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Oh, a side trip to Mar-a-Lago. They're going to meet with Trump on Saturday night. Um, and... Um, 
the piece says that Trump has found ways to exert an almost gravitational hold over a leaderless party just three months after the assault on the Capitol. Uh, his preference for engaging in red meat political fights rather than governing and policymaking have left party leaders in a state of confusion in the view of the New York Times. Even when it comes to business, which was once the business of Republicanism. I've talked about that and what a historic split this could turn out to be. So far, Republicans, you know, with the exception of immigration, where they're mounting a real policy fight, and should, you know, it's a really important issue, and it's an issue of great importance to the GOP base. Republicans have embraced fights over such seemingly small bore issues as, and you know what's coming here, a handful of racially insensitive Dr. Seuss books, the right of transgender people, although people in that community and in the gay community will tell you that's not a minor issue, but, you know, you go to one law in one state about surgery or using bathrooms, whatever, and the willingness of large institutions or corporations like MLB and Coca-Cola to side with Democrats on voting rights, trying to portray a nation in the grip of elites obsessed with identity politics. Um, and here's the, one of the main reasons I wanted to include this, is this quote uh, from Scott Jennings, a noted Republican strategist. This, he says, is the beating heart of the Republican Party right now. The media has replaced Democrats as the opposition. The platform is, whatever the media is against today, I'm for. And whatever they're for, I'm against. Interesting. Now, look, I mean, who defined the media as part of the opposition party, to use Steve Bannon's phrase? It was Donald Trump who made uh, attacking, quote, fake news and enemy of the American people a signature of his four years in office, Donald Trump. And so this comes up in part because of the 60 Minutes botch of a story against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which I think is mentioned in this piece. Um, finally, so this leaves uh, Republicans, kind of at least some Republicans, finding themselves politically homeless in the opinion of the New York Times. For example, the Chamber of Commerce, which really pissed off Republican lawmakers by cozying up the Democrats on voting rights, but is now shocked and appalled that Biden wants to raise corporate taxes. Well, come on. Biden talked about this during the campaign. I'm sure the Chamber of Commerce isn't shocked and appalled. That's my phrase. But the Chamber of Commerce does not want this to happen. So what do you do? The GOP is pissed off at you uh, because of your stance on some of these social issues. Biden wants to remember the, the corporate tax rate was 35%. Donald Trump slashed it to 21%. Joe Biden wants to bring it back to 28%, about halfway in between, but his signal needs to open the compromise. So can he strike a deal and get the Chamber of Commerce on board? I don't know. But it is an interesting snapshot of the GOP at a time when um, some of the old alliances are, are strained, to say the least. You do have these culture fights. I mean, that's what I think, see as baseball being a culture war fight. I saw a quote today from some Republicans saying, baseball is now a blue state sport. Now, I don't believe that. I think there are all kinds of people in all kinds of red states who love the game of baseball. Are some of them going to drop off because they believe that Major League Baseball has become too woke? Obviously, this became an issue for the NBA with the protests there, for the NFL, with the anthem protests. It could cost baseball some viewership. Is baseball going to go out of business? No. Is this boycott going to gain more and more steam? I don't know. I don't know, but it's an interesting inflection point 
where a lot of the usual political lines are being scrambled. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on to number four. This from the Washington Examiner about what happened in Georgia. Uh, because one of the things is probably of more interest locally than nationally, but it is a, a stunning amount, a stunning degree of retaliation. So one of the provisions in this new Georgia law strips the Secretary of State of some crucial power, I would say, over elections. Who is the Secretary of State in Georgia? Brad Raffensperger. Why do you know that name? You know that name because President Trump, when he was trying to get the Georgia election results overturned, had the phone call with Brad Raffensperger, uh, which was recorded, which we've all heard, you know, can you possibly just find 11,000, you know, 750 votes, whatever the exact number was. Raffensperger stood up to the president of his party, refused to do that. And Trump has talks about Raffensperger all the time. He's been in a tear against Raffensperger. He wants Raffensperger to be defeated as Georgia's secretary of state. Uh, and Raffensperger himself now says that this move where they changed the Georgia law is retribution. Because what's happened is the Secretary of State, and you know whether it's Raffensperger or someone else in the future, will no longer be chairman of the state election board. Instead, the chairman of state election board will be an appointee selected by, wait for it, the state legislature, which at the moment and probably for the foreseeable future is controlled by the Republican Party. I don't support it, Raffensperger told the Washington Examiner. Obviously, the Secretary of State has been the chair of the election board since 1960, and in the moment of retribution, I was stripped of that, and now you have an unelected person. That's an awful lot of power to give an unelected person of a very important board. So you have to wonder if this was in effect in 2020, and the state legislature, controlled by one party, got to name somebody, maybe some political hack, that person would have had the power, certainly would have had great influence as the head of the election board to say, you know what, uh, I think there's a lot of suspicious fraud here. And we're going to overturn this and we're going to say Donald Trump won Georgia, not Joe Biden by 11,000 some votes. Um, seems to me like this, you know, if other states do this, you know, regardless of what you're thinking, and I've, I've talked about how this Georgia law was demonized. Some things make it more difficult, certainly, to cast mail ballots, which, you know, should that be the future? I mean, we had absentee ballots. We had states that, that relied heavily on absentee ballots long before the pandemic. But nevertheless, look, both parties are jockeying for advantage here. There's a lot of stuff that favors the Democrats in that H.R. 1, which I don't think is ever going to pass the Senate. Um, but nevertheless... Do we want state legislatures, Democrat or Republican, be able to appoint somebody who could overturn the will of the people and it is a disputed election, even if you know nobody is in the, the offended presidential candidate, the presidential candidate who comes out on the losing end, goes to court and can't prove in a single court of law that there was, you know, where the, we're not talking here about where it's so tight that there's an automatic recount. We're talking here about allegations of fraud that cannot be proven. Donald Trump could not prove. The Justice Department under Bill Barr could not prove that there was widespread fraud. So I find this kind of troubling, and it's inf interesting that Raffensperger is speaking out. Of course, Raffensperger himself was a Republican trying to save his job. All right, moving on to number five. The Wall Street Journal has an interesting editorial today, and obviously the journal comes at it from a conservative point of view. And it has to do 
with the debate over COVID and vaccines and the role of social media. So in order to have a good debate, and I'll give you the journal's take and then I'll give you mine, uh, Americans need to know what their elected representatives and officials are saying. This is an essential democratic principle. It's true as true for coronavirus responses for any other policy challenge. So it's chilling, says the journal editorial board, that YouTube, through its, quote, medical misinformation policy, appears to be systematically undermining the ability to access material in the, material in the public interest. Now, YouTube, as you probably know, is owned by Google. Last September, YouTube scrub, which is to say deleted, uh, an interview by the conservative Hoover Institution with Scott Atlas, who was one of Trump's coronavirus advisors, who had some views that a lot of doctors, Fauci and others, thought were wackadoodle, but nonetheless, he was a White House official. He was a White House advisor. Now, YouTube has taken down a video of Ron DeSantis, here's the Florida governor again, holding a policy discussion with Scott Atlas and the three creators of the great Barrington Declaration, which if you haven't heard of it, I frankly don't know much about it, a group of physicians and scientists critical of strict lockdowns to fight the coronavirus. Now, they may be wrong about that. Maybe lockdowns are what we have needed. Less so now, I think. But still, you know what? Almost 1,000 Americans died yesterday of the coronavirus. This thing is not over. Biden is right about that. It's a race of time between getting more Americans vaccinated and um, the number of cases as, as restrictions are eased, as in some cases they should be, Warmer weather, spring break, and all that. Okay, so it's an hour and 45 minutes. It's a wonky policy discussion. Governor DeSantis and these panelists were going after the U.S. coronavirus response as excessively draconian and ineffective, according to this journal write-up. They said there were unintended public health harms from lockdowns and school closures, which happens to be true. It's a balancing act, folks. They criticized mask mandates and generally celebrated Florida's response. Okay, so it's propaganda for Ron DeSantis, okay, but he's entitled to have a panel discussion. He's entitled to put forth his point of view. Other people can put forth their point of view that maybe he shouldn't have allowed all these spring breakers to go to Miami. Miami ultimately had to you know, arrest people and have a curfew. So this was shared uh, uh, from a story by a Tampa Bay news station. Um, and then it was flagged for YouTube by uh, what sounds like a conservative group. And YouTube told the journal in a statement, it removed this video because, quote, it included content that contradicts the consensus of local and global health authorities regarding the efficacy of masks to prevent the spread of COVID-19. So, for example, YouTube says, look, there's one passage where DeSantis asked one uh, panelist who's a Harvard biostatistician. These are not whack jobs whether children would need to wear masks. And the Harvard guy says no. Another um, doctor from Stanford says masking for children is developmentally inappropriate. DeSantis says that we went back a year, a lot of experts would say that wearing masks for the general public is not evidence-based. Now, I don't happen to agree with that. I'm not talking about young kids here. I think masks are crucial. I think people who argue against masks, I don't understand why Trump was ambivalent about it, and I don't understand why... DeSantis is having this fight now. But I think that Ron DeSantis is a governor, elected governor, has a right to be heard. People can click on the video and make up their own life. This is not where people say the COVID vaccine will kill you. This is not straight out lies and misinformation. This is a policy debate. 
And whether you agree or disagree, who elected YouTube to take this down? And how much impact does that have anyway? So the journal's take is this is an Orwellian standard for medical misinformation to say, well, it contradicts authorities. It's not even clear, says the journal, the panelist's opposition to masking children contradicts the WHO, which says children aged five and under should not be required to wear masks. In other words, it's not this far out crazy opinion. So the question I think is, is this fair for YouTube to do? Or is this, you know, if, if anything that contradicts the scientific opinion, well, scientific opinion isn't always clear. I mentioned on the podcast the other day, CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, she came out and said, if you are vaccinated, you still have to be careful and not wear a mask. Then she says, no, no, you can travel, it's fine. Then she came out and said, well, it's not quite clear. So opinions are evolving and they're based on debate. And that debate is not always clear. Now, sometimes it's politically inspired. And people who say masks are BS and you don't need them, you know, again, I don't agree with that at all. But do I want to muzzle them? I want to shut them down? If they're not coming out with outright lies, if they're just voicing their opinions as elected officials or um, people who teach at accredited colleges, let's have the debate. Why does Google get to shut this down? Why? Because social media, um, while in the past allowing way too much blatant Russian propaganda, disinformation, hate speech. That's one category. Debating important scientific matter or matters during the pandemic, that's something we should encourage. I don't want Google having all this power. Do you? And with that, I'll remind you to tune in, please, to Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. We're going to deal with a whole lot of stuff um, and making changes to the show now, as I do every Friday. We're going to be in a new studio. I'll talk more about that on the air. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe on your Amazon device if you so desire, or on Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts. We'll see you back here Monday with more Buzz News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.